Good morning again. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, we've been working through 1 Peter for a number of weeks now. We come to chapter 3 this morning. You know, I said in our new members class this morning that, that uh, we're not going to skip over hard passages. This morning is proof. Uh, <laughs> Before we read it, though, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, all of it, uh, every word of it. We know that your word is good and your word is truth. We know that we need it. So we pray, Father, that you would open and soften our hearts to you this morning, uh, that we would be ready to receive what you have to say to us in your word. Uh, Work in us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There is a beauty to gospel-shaped living. And maybe you know someone who just loves Jesus and loves people. Someone who revels in the grace of Jesus and shows grace to those around him or her. I must admit, I fail at this a lot. And where I fail the most is with my family. It's with our families more often than not that we struggle to live out the implications of grace. And yet it's just there in our homes where the gospel should be most evident. And this morning, Peter speaks to the heart of family life, to the husband and the wife, and says, here is what it looks like when the gospel is brought to bear on this relationship. And what it looks like is countercultural. And of course, it couldn't be anything else. Peter calls us sojourners and exiles on earth in chapter 2, verse 11. We are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, which means that this world is not our home, meaning we don't fit in, meaning that the one whom we serve and the way that we live and the values that we have are distinctly different from the world around us. 
And whether we are in first century Asia Minor, uh, the people to whom Peter was writing, or in 21st century America, either way, we are called to live differently. And this difference bears witness to God's grace. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus put it similarly in Matthew 5, verse 16. He said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so as the gospel takes root in our hearts and our lives, we let our light shine and our Father is glorified. You see, there's a beauty and a brightness to gospel-shaped living that is attractive even when it's countercultural. This morning we're going to look at the the beauty of gospel-shaped living, and we have uh, three points. Uh, You can follow along on the back of your bulletin if you'd like uh, a place to take notes. There's an outline there. The three points are the beauty of gospel-shaped authority, the beauty of gospel-shaped submission, and the beauty of a gospel-shaped heart. First, the beauty of gospel-shaped authority. Our temptation is to want to overthrow authority or abuse it. We want to overthrow it if, if we are under authority, and we want to abuse it if we are in authority. Now, overthrow sounds kind of grandiose. I just mean we don't want to go along. We don't like it when others make decisions and and we have no say. We don't like it when we don't get the final word. Children don't want to listen to their parents, and employees often badmouth their boss, and citizens often badmouth their political leaders. And I don't mean we simply disagree with those in charge. I mean we, we have a rebellious streak, don't we? Now, there, there are times and places and cultures where this is not the case, where conformity and honor, uh, honoring authority become everything. But this is just the problem, isn't it? Uh, at these times, authority is inflated beyond what it was meant to be. And so if American culture is a rebellious one pursuing autonomy, Eastern cultures are often said to inflate authority to the diminishment of the individual. You know, but these big cultural trends are played out in the mundane context of marriages and families. Peter speaks into the temptation of husbands and wives, the temptation of husbands to abuse their leadership in the home, and the temptation of wives to throw it off. These temptations are bound up in the curse from the beginning, by the way. Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve, After the fall, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That verse is getting at the power struggle that is so often prevalent in marriages. And it's into that that Peter speaks. Now, to understand God's way out of this power struggle properly, we have to look at Christ. We need to understand both Christ's submission to authority and his exercise of authority. We'll look first at Christ's exercise of authority and see how that applies to the husband in verse 7. And then we'll look at Christ's submission to authority and see that, how that applies to the wife in verses 1 through 6. It's important for us to note from the start that this is not strictly a male-female thing, but a husband and wife thing. Peter says, uh, does not say, women be subject to men, 
but wives to your husbands. And of course, the truth is, in society at large, women will find themselves in positions of authority and men will find themselves under authority. And at that point, uh, many of the things that we say about husbands will apply to women in positions of leadership. And everything we say about wives will apply to men who find themselves under authority. But we are going to be applying those things specifically, as Peter does, to husbands and wives. So let's look at first Christ's exercise of authority. And and I need to point out uh, really two simple things about authority. The first uh, comes from Matthew 28, 18, uh, where we're told that Jesus is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And I, 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 the point I want you to notice is maybe an odd one. Uh, that is that authority there is given. Authority is always stewardship. God owns everything. He has all authority. And if we, any one of us, has authority over something, that authority has been given by God. We are stewards of God's world. Even the resurrected resurrected Jesus was stewarded authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. And when you are a steward, your job is to care for the thing entrusted to you. Not to selfishly use, abuse, or misuse that thing, but to care for it, to cultivate it, to protect it. Authority is stewardship, always. Second, notice the way that Jesus himself defines authority, and to do that you have to flip over to Mark 10. In uh, Mark chapter 10, you may know the story, James and John want to sit, one on Jesus' right hand and one on his left, when he comes into his glory. That is, they want positions of authority. Jesus insists they don't know what they're asking for, and the rest of the disciples get indignant, possibly because they didn't think to ask first. But Jesus gathers them together, and he says this in Mark 10, 42 to 45. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. The implication of that word, uh, according to the commentaries, is the abuse of authority, oppression. It's not the simple word for authority, but implies its abuse. But it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." See, Jesus says the model of true authority in his kingdom is service, Jesus' own service. And so as a steward, you care for what is entrusted to you by serving those under your authority. Authority is always stewardship toward God and service toward people. That, I think, is at least a baseline biblical understanding of authority, which can be applied in any circumstance. So Peter is speaking to husbands here in verse 7, starting at the end of our text. And he's speaking to husbands whose understanding of authority is off. And you know the stereotype. The the stereotype of the the Al Bundy type. If anybody remembers Al Bundy. um, the, The man who comes home, he demands food on the table while he sits in his lazy boy to watch football. He's the king of his castle and everybody is there to serve him. 
He doesn't honor anyone, but he demands honor from everyone. He doesn't seek to understand, but only uh, demands that others conform. And it's that stereotype and similar ones that people often argue against when they reject the idea of authority and submission in the home. But of course, that's not a biblical exercise of authority. And so Peter says in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the, one as the, we- to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And note just uh, three things from this verse, understanding, honor, and prayer. Uh, first, understanding. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Why would this be important? Well, uh, to state the obvious, I think the obvious, uh, mutual understanding is actually essential to any relationship, any healthy relationship. And maybe, maybe especially as guys, uh, we assume that uh, the other person is just like us. That is why often uh, guys are so confused by the things their wives do. We assume she's just like us, and then when she does things we wouldn't do, or in a way that we wouldn't do them, we throw our hands in the air in frustration. But if we're going to steward, cultivate, and protect, and care for our wives, we need to take time to understand them, to listen to them, to talk with them. And it's true, stereotypically, these are not things that guys are known for. Listening, talking. Now, you may be the exception. I don't know. Ask your wife. (laughs) But to exercise authority in the home well, you must take time to understand your wife. This goes both ways, of course. But again, the stereotype is the husband who says, well, she's just not being rational. I don't understand what she does and why she does it. So Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Take time to get to know them, to understand them. Second, honor. Peter says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, first, let me deal with the phrase weaker vessel. Uh, By vessel, Peter most likely means the body. And by talking about the woman as the weaker vessel, Peter is making an assumption. He's making the assumption that in the home, the wife is physically weaker than the husband. Now, he's not saying that women are weak, but that typically the woman has less brute strength than her husband. Now, is this Peter uh, being sexist? Right? Is he he just being misogynist here? What's going on? Well, think about it. Who is it in most marriages who might use their physical strength to domineer over the other person? In most cases, it's the man. Peter is not being sexist, and he's not being demeaning. He's being realistic. He's saying, don't think your physical strength gives you an excuse to dishonor your wife, to domineer or control or abuse her. Peter is calling out the husband who throws his weight around. He's saying, don't do that. Specifically, Peter says to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, again, think about it. How does it work in the world? Honor is based on power. You give honor to the one who can demand it. 
You honor the one who can flex his or her muscles. Honor is based on ability and strengths, beauty even, but all different kinds of power. What's Peter's point? Honor is not based on power. Honor is to be based on your identity in Christ. Show honor to the woman since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So Christian husbands, why do you honor your wife? Because you should. Why do you do that? Because of who she is in Christ. Not because she serves you, not because she makes you happy, not not because you like the way she looks, not because you're afraid of her. You honor your wife because of who she is in Jesus, a co-heir with you of the grace of life. That means, of course, that she is your equal. Equality doesn't mean that you don't have authority in the home. That's a misunderstanding of both authority and equality. That you have a boss at work does not make her somehow better than you, and it doesn't make you inferior. It just means she's your boss. Authority in position, equality as persons. And so, yes, husbands, you have authority in your home. But, yes, you better honor your wife as a co-heir with you, equal before God and in Christ. Or what? Third, prayer. Notice that Peter warns if husbands don't live with their wives in an understanding way and show them honor as co-heirs, their prayers will be hindered. Which is to say, you can't think your relationship to God is fine if you are neglectful or abusive in your relationship to your wife. When our horizontal relationships are broken, God takes that seriously. Peter implies that God says, essentially, look, don't come asking stuff from me when you are mistreating your wife. Make that right. At least do what you can to make that right and then come and talk to me. This is actually very similar to something Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he said, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and then go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this is... I think that the beauty of gospel-shaped authority, rather than authority being about power dynamics and getting people to serve you, it's about husbands who seek to serve their wives by caring for them and cultivating them and living with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as co-heirs of grace. So that's the beauty of gospel-shaped authority. Next, the beauty of gospel-shaped submission. God has set up an authority structure in the home for the sake of order. Uh, More than that, the relationship between husband and wife is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his himself, its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, some people think that the very idea of submission, the very word submit, is belittling or demeaning or even dehumanizing. And much of that is because of the stereotypes that aren't at all what the scriptures are talking about. 
We've talked about this uh, for the past few weeks, but it's important to say again that Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents, and even uh, to a degree to the corrupt religious and political rulers of his day, and ultimately to his Father in heaven. And what this shows is submission in no way intrinsically implies inferiority. Think about it. Jesus is not, was not, inferior to Mary and Joseph, but he did submit to them. Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now remember uh, what he has already said to husbands. If husbands are loving their wives well, this should be a beautiful thing and submission should naturally follow. Uh, Submission, by the way, doesn't mean that you just do whatever someone tells you to do. Uh, So, for example, we are called in Scripture to submit to the civil government. But Peter in Acts says, we must obey God rather than men. And so when civil or religious or familial or vocational or educational authorities tell us to do things that are contrary to God's word, we are bound to disobey. We obey God rather than men, even if we then accept whatever consequences come from that. We also need to say that there is no given way to work this out in the home. Right? We need to apply these principles. And we should be thoughtful here, right? Your, think about it. Your submission to governing authorities doesn't mean uh, you can't voice disagreement or e- even if you ultimately obey. Your submission to your boss at work doesn't mean you don't collaborate and talk things through even if he or she makes the final decision. And so submission does not mean, that, again, the, the caricature uh, that wives must stay in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant, keeping quiet, waiting on their husband's hand and foot. That's not submission. In fact, that would be a misuse or misunderstanding of authority and a caricature at best of submission. Submission does mean you you respect your husband's leadership in the home in ways similar to how you ought to respect leaders at work and at school and at church and in the government. Peter says there's an added benefit to this. It, It reflects well on the gospel. Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He's not saying uh, people can come to Christ apart from the gospel there, by the way. First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, we are born again through the living and abiding word of God. It's the word of God that draws us to Christ and causes us to be born again. But what he is saying is that sometimes what people need is not more words. Sometimes what they need is for us to live before them in a way that they see our God-fearing and pure conduct and our actions bear witness to the truth of our words. If you want someone to receive the grace of the gospel, let your light shine before them that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we always need to say when we talk about this that this doesn't mean being perfect or worse, pretending to be perfect. People need to see real Christians with real doubts and real sins learning to walk in real faith. That is beautiful and winsome. Now, just try for a minute to imagine the temptation for women who had come to Christ in Peter's day, but whose husbands had not. The temptation might be to argue and become oppositional, or even to leave the unbelieving spouse altogether. Peter says, submit to your husbands. 
so that even if some do not obey the word, that is, even if they have not believed the gospel, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, this, of course, could be true in many situations. It could be true at home with your parents. It could be true at work with your boss. It could be true in school with your teacher and your classmates or in society at large as citizens. Our submission to authority bears witness to the grace of God at work in us. That, I think, is the beauty of gospel-shaped submission. So we've looked at the beauty of gospel-shaped authority and the beauty of gospel-shaped submission. And third, and finally, we'll talk about the beauty of a gospel-shaped heart. People tend to focus on outward appearances. I can say this with confidence for a few reasons. First and foremost, because God says so in 1 Samuel 16, 7. God says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And yet there's anecdotal evidence as well, right? Our culture is consumed with appearances. Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok, these are all about the the visual, about the image. It might make you think that our culture is somehow more focused on the outward appearance than any other. But then you turn to Scripture and you read verses like Proverbs 31.30, which says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And you ask... Why did the writer of Proverbs need to remind people that beauty is vain? Or you read Jesus' accusations about the religious leaders of his day who were like whitewashed tombs, Matthew 23, 27, which appear outwardly beautiful, but inside were full of dead men's bones. And you realize that this is not a 21st century problem, it's a human problem. Our tendency is to prioritize appearance over character. We do that with ourselves, being more concerned about the way we look than about the way we act. Uh, We do that with others, judging them by their appearances rather than their actions. Uh, We sometimes even do that with our witness, being more concerned about what people might think than we are concerned to be honest about what's actually going on. Peter calls us to prioritize character over appearance. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, it's important that we understand here what Peter is not saying. Uh, He's not saying you can't braid your hair or that you can't put on gold jewelry any more than he's saying you can't wear clothing. (laughs) Just look at the verse. And in fact, the godly woman of Proverbs 31 dresses in fine linen and purple, which would have been considered luxurious and royal, and she is commended for her godliness. The prodigal father clothed his son in the best robe and put a ring on his finger, an image demonstrating God's lavish love. So Peter is not denouncing outward beauty, but he's talking about the relative priority of the beauty of your heart over that of your body. Peter's also not saying, in verse 4, that women should be gentle and quiet, but men can be gruff and loud. These qualities, gentle and quiet, are actually not uniquely feminine qualities in Scripture. Jesus, in fact, was said to be gentle 
in Matthew eleven twenty nine and Matthew twenty one five. And gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. All Christians are called to aspire to live quietly, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And so Peter is encouraging women not to feminine maturity, but toward Christian maturity, to be concerned about the hidden person of the heart rather than the outer person of their bodies. Now, sometimes some women, and some men too, get consumed with the outward appearance. And in fact, men often encourage this. Sometimes that concern manifests itself in terms of insecurity. Uh, We are afraid of what people will think of us, how they look at us, whether they are judging us. And husbands, this may be true of your wife. One way of loving her through that is expressing your appreciation for her beauty. But another way is by expressing your appreciation for her inner beauty so that she knows that she excels in what is most important. And of course, by that that dual appreciation, you help refocus her heart on what really matters, the hidden person of the heart. In fact, we all need this. We need our hearts refocused on what really matters. What is precious in the sight of God? Not whether you look like a supermodel, not whether you're wearing the latest fads, uh, not whether your uh, BMI is where it should be or whether you have a six-pack or not. What is precious in the sight of God is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And so let me ask all of you, right, uh, do you spend as much time focused on the hidden person of the heart as you do on your outward appearance? You know, we spend time and money and energy trying to make ourselves look good and smell good and appear attractive. Do we spend more time and money and more energy focused on our hearts, seeking to adorn the inner man? Well, how do you do that? In fact, how do you do any of this? How do you reflect the beauty of gospel-shaped authority? And how do you reflect the beauty of gospel-shaped submission? And how do you reflect the beauty of a gospel-shaped heart? Of course, the answer is you you cannot do those things in your own strength. And so we look to Christ. We look to the one who submitted to the Father and has now received all authority in heaven and on earth. We look to the one who conquered sin, including the sins of pride and self-will and vanity, and rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who received the gift of the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and then poured out His Spirit on the church, the Spirit of holiness and power which means that we can now rest in Christ's cross for the forgiveness of our failures, and we can rely on Christ's Spirit to empower us to walk in new life. What we need, both husbands and wives, is the mind of Christ in us, rather than being self-serving or self-seeking or self-willed. We need to, as Paul says in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." See, only as we look to the cross 
and know that God will care for us, that God will look out for our interests, are we free to not look out for ourselves, but free to serve and free to submit? And only as we see the beauty of Jesus' submission will we realize the limits of outward beauty. As we gaze upon the one who was truly beautiful, not in outward appearance, but in his love for lost and broken people like us. Friends, let us look to the cross and look to the gospel and see true beauty that we might become truly beautiful. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you for your word again and again and again. And we pray that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us and correct us, and that you would conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus, that we would display his beauty, his glory in the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.